Welcome to a special episode of the Programmatic Digest podcast. In this episode, I'm taking a few minutes to talk to you about a conference I attended in November called Navigator, and it was led and organized by the Beeler Tech team. And so if you're interested, if you're interested in uh, attending future conferences that by their team, um, everything is in the show notes right now. You go, all you got to do is ch- uh, click. With that said, um, the Bibliotech is fundamentally a community. Um, if you are either looking for business partners or partnership, or if you are in the market for a new job, feel free to, again, get to the link below and really um, join their, their community. And I'm pretty sure they also have a Slack channel, which I am in actually, so they do have a Slack channel anyway. So during the Navigator, um, there was this whole theme from publishers and apps and, <laughs> you know, people on the sell side, because, you know, we we on the, on the buy side. Um, there have been this whole theme that publishers want more per, uh, direct deal over programmatic. And so I had the pleasure of interviewing a few people. So the next video that you're going to see is a quick interview that I had the pleasure of talking to um, and the honor of interviewing Grouchy, Grouchy Greg from allhiphop.com. And so listen to what he had to say about programmatic versus direct deals, right? Because again, he owns, um, he's a publisher, he owns uh, allhiphop.com, because I've, I feel like you'll find it very interesting if you're on the buy side. If you're on the sell side, then feel free to reach out to me and let me know what you think for real. Awesome. So tell us your biggest takeaway. I'm like, where did you attend? So we were just at the direct sold to from the uh, from the sell side to the buy side panel that was moderated by the VP of revenue for the New York Times. And um, it was very in, a, a very insightful panel discussion uh, hearing about uh, you know, the need to have so many of these processes automated from analytics to billing and, and just how much fragmentation there still is. So let me ask you this, right? So should we still do direct sold or should we go for programmatic? What's the answer? What should we do? Direct sold all day. I, I'm, I'm direct sold all day. You know, no, listen. In programmatic, if you are a marketer, if you want to waste... 15% of your budget, 5% going directly to fraud, maybe another 10% going to MFA, MFAs that results in, you know, maybe 50, $60 million worth of loss each year. Well, then go ahead and stay in the programmatic supply chain. But if you want to deal with websites that are performant and that perform and have real audiences, then you need to get back to doing direct sold campaigns, especially as we're uh, approaching all of this signal loss with uh, uh, the death of the cookie coming up. So, you know, it behooves most companies, if they want to spend their budget well, to spend it, you know, with directly with the publishers. All right, last question, okay? Um, so, like, what is one advice you give to people attending this type of conference? How can we they maximize? What What would you do today? Uh, the best thing you can do at conferences like this is network. You know, break out of your shell and introduce yourself to as many people as possible. Uh, specifically here at Beeler Tech. 
I mean, I've come away with contacts that have resulted in new direct business deals every time that I come. So there is a direct correlation with uh, dealer tech and converting, uh, you know, your your uh, the people that you meet into real revenue. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> okay. What did you think about Grouchy's Grouchy's point of view? Um, I thought it makes a lot of sense from a publisher perspective, but if you have a different perspective, I'd love to hear it. Hit me up on LinkedIn or in the comment over here. Here's another thing I would say is that the next video was a quick interview with Jamie at Bambura. And oh my gosh, she got to talk about her favorite session. As you'll see here, the next three minutes is the quick interview, just like with Grouchy. But we, she really shared um, this whole thing about test, uh, the testing phase from a publisher perspective. And so take a listen to what she had to say. What do you do? So um, I'm Janie Schulteis and I work for Bambora. I am the VP of Global Data Partnerships uh, and my day-to-day -day is pretty incredible in that I work with publishers all around the world, uh, primarily on um, identity and intent data solutions. Awesome. So Jamie, tell us um, your biggest takeaway about like what session was your favorite and why, and maybe like one actionable insight. What are you going to do to implement what you just learned today? Which session was that? So, and there are a couple sessions this afternoon I'm really excited about. So these are the, the couple that I have attended this morning. I, I will say that I... I'm not going to pick a favorite, but I want to highlight two things. Okay. One, there was a um, identity graph session, and my big takeaway from that was you had a, a publishers that were on a spectrum of where they are in that identity journey, and nobody can say that they're all the way there and successful, right? Oh, wow. Everybody's in this test and learn mode, but that's progress because a year ago, I think there were only a handful of publishers that were even in that test and learn mode. So I think that was really exciting and telling for somebody that works in data and is helping publishers, you know, grow their first party data strategies and yeah. solutions. Um, and then there was another session that I thought was really, really cool. Um, and that was where we had an agency and we had a publisher in the room and we were just talking about how to make the process with less friction, right? Right. There's so many taxes in the middle and paper and different paper and different, you know, planners and um, and, and there were a lot of great ideas. Yeah. And so what I would love as a takeaway for me would be to be part of that group that gets to say, how do we make this more efficient? How do we sit down, buy side, sell side, and come up with a more efficient way to do what we're doing? Yeah. Um, so last question. <clears throat> What is uh, one advice you want to give to somebody that hasn't attended a conference or is co attending a conference? Like, what is one thing you want them to do if they're here or on your next conference? What is one thing you're like, all right, I'm going to do at every conference and I feel good about it? I feel like you gave me a little softball. <laughs> because the number one thing I would say is reach out to people that you don't know. I would not be having this conversation right now had I not just sat down with total strangers and I am learning, right? We've yeah. already had a conversation about some ways that we can help each other and that's really what this is about. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. That was lovely. This is perfect. Okay. Okay. And next. Um, so, so 
this episode is really to talk about my learnings. What did I, what did I learn, learn attending the conference, but also like, what are some actionable insights? You hear me, hear me say this all the time here. What are some actionable insights? Why are you just attending just to attend, just because there's nice food and people are nice? Um, I think attending those type of conference, the number one reason is networking, being able to expand your circle professionally and personally, if that makes sense, right? And so I would say um, the biggest thing is focusing on networking, but with a purpose, with intention. Don't go by the numbers, go by the quality, go by the feeling. And that's why you'll see that I only got to interview about two people. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. I want to interview 10 people at first, but I couldn't. Okay. And uh, I'm sharing this to let you know that it's because I am a breastfeeding mom and I had to take a few minutes to go. <laughs> go pump and get back on the floor and I give myself some grace. So if you're a woman and you're listening to this or even a dad and you feel guilty about, you know, <laughs> your personal life at those professional events, it's okay. This is my quick PSA to let you know that grace over guilt, my friend, grace over guilt. And that is also special shout out to the Beeler Tech team because I emailed them only one time about, hey, uh, do you think well, I will have a mommy room so I can take care of business? Um, because I have, well, he was five and a half month old at that time, but, and they say, yeah, we got you. And as soon as I walked in, somebody from their team walked me to somebody at the Meredith.dash, you know, the building where everything was hosted. Um, somebody from their team walked me to exactly to the room and said, listen, I'll be here. I'm your person whenever you want. Several times during the day, every couple hours, I had to step away. But I'm okay with that. I'm sure I missed some really great conversation. Um, but whatever I heard um, that Thursday was meant for me to hear. And whoever I talked to was meant for me to talk to. And that's just okay. And that's enough. With that being said, I had the pleasure of attending the SEND box, the Privacy Sandbox Readiness and Testing um, session with Meverline Francisco, Head of Data Strategy and MarTech at Essence Mediacom. And uh, I think her name is Emily Skaden. Skaden, I'm sorry, Emily, if I'm butchering your name. Um, head of ad tech and publisher and marketer partnership, Privacy Sandbox at Google. And so their conversation was you know, I mean, I, we heard testing a lot during uh, the conference, but like, I feel like their conversation, if we had to play a drinking game, testing would be, <laughs> testing would be the drinking keyword, okay? And I would have been drunk by the end of it. And not because I'm a lightweight, but because it is what it is. But um, so here, Mibberlene um, talking about um, Mediacom, um, essence of Mediacom um, timeline. How are they testing this whole cookie deprecation or the cookie phase out and how Q1 2024 is gonna come rapidly, right? And so you get to hear what Mibberline has to say about how she's running her team, but her running uh, Mediacom and the type of priorities they have in place in order to do what they have to do. And that's how we actually plan out our testing agenda. So it's with the power of collective data intelligence. Obviously, it's anonymized because we have competing clients. But it allows us to look at the category level versus the brand, where they fit, where their readiness are, where the vulnerabilities exist, and 
then prioritize and create a schematic so that when we go to the market with clear recommendations, it's not just, hey, just throw some stuff on the wall, see what sticks. It's really based on where that marketer is relative to their category and the competition in the space and how they ensure that we're setting them up for success. And that takes a lot of um, collaboration, uh, data sharing in a responsible way, um, as well as um, ensuring that we're using data to make these decisions, not just throw, throw everything, throw money out there, because that, that's not gonna be the way either. Can we have that tool repurposed and white label for like the publishers? Oh my gosh. Well, maybe we can create a framework because that is really powerful, yeah. right? That's the first question that it asks. Like, so this next video, it's Emily. Um, I wish I would have recorded the full interaction. I think I stopped it because I was like, oh, wait a minute. Um, but it was a really great uh, uh, questions. Obviously, everything was super diplomatic, but some of those questions was hard to hear uh, for some of us, not me, but for some of us up from some of us in the room. And I, I forgot the name of the gentleman, unfortunately, but he was asking about like where can publishers find out more information about the privacy sandbox. And that's where you'll hear Emily talk about GitHub and things like that. But then you you hear her say a lot of the suppliers, the supply vendors already are signed up to being part of that phase, that testing phase. And so the gentleman was like, you know, not to shoot the publisher, I mean, the, the supply vendors down, but like, um, what can publishers do um, indifferent? So that, that, that interaction was pretty cool. Are planning to be ready for testing in January that have announced their intentions. Um, we have a GitHub page um, that I can show the link to where they've listed out their information um, and how to get in touch with them. So if you work with one of those SSPs already, like you're in a good position to be enabled for testing. Um, most not, of them, to, not to knock the SSP. Yeah. Like, that's more, uh, like that's a middle that's, end, right? Like, like what, I know, what and we're trying, trying to cut out the middle What can the publisher do anything? I mean, that's kind of the question, right? Like, does the publisher pass data, or is Chrome just doing all the work, you know, based on the user, based on the user, like, their browsers on there. Yeah. For a year from now. Mm -hmm. And you guys are spending money, but your campaigns are not, no longer working, or there's a perception that they're not working. I think the fear is you're just going to stop spending, right? Mm -hmm. And that's going to come down. I don't know where the question is, but. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm looking for reassurance. <laughs> You'll continue to spend. Well, I think the answer is like, Okay, so let's turn it around and say, let's say that you do nothing. My money's gonna go somewhere. Mm. So my money's gonna go where I have answers. So there's a bigger risk of not doing than actually going in and testing, especially if we're thinking about the power of the collective, where now you're not talking about uh, investing everywhere, to your point, mm -hmm. but being selective, but still aggregating so everybody wins. Just to add on to that, I think one of the things that we talk about a lot is the fact that these changes are coming and our industry has had 20 years um, to optimize against the, the third party cookie. That's true. Right? And so if we look at a year from now, right, like Chrome is committed to continue developing the technologies that we're making available through the browser for these use cases to support right, a vibrant ecosystem. Like we fail if 
the free and open internet cannot survive after this. Like, we all, like, we will be in a horrible, horrible, horrible spot, right? And so, like, we are very committed to, like, continuing to hear feedback and understand what's going on and what the reality is on the ground, right, from our ad tech partners, from the advertisers, from the publishers. What I don't think that we can expect is, you know, again, that like in one year, we're going to be as ready as we are exactly today with third-party cookies as the basis of all of our targeting and that technology. So I do want to acknowledge, right, it'll continue to be a journey even a year from now. Okay, now I'm going to shift gears a little bit. Um... I'm going to shift a little uh, shift gears a little bit um, to to the one of the keynote uh, session with Tom Triscari. And again, if you've attended the conference and if you uh, and or if you were a speaker, um, shout out to you. I I'm, I'm sorry, I probably did not get to get to to your session, but it doesn't mean that again, I was probably pumping. So uh, I gracefully. I uh, want to let you know that I appreciate you for being a fellow speaker at this conference because just the session I attended were drastic. It was it was major. It, it was such a good feeling. And first of all, shout out to like the VR tech attendees, right? Because y'all are some other, y'all on an other level, right? So the session I had before we talk, go back to Tom Triscari's session I, I was also a speaker and I do have a few, uh, a couple videos at the end of this podcast about the, the session I, I led, but like y'all were asking questions, the energy was on another level and it's totally different. I think in 2024, I'm going to make it a point and a priority as a company to send my people to Beelora Tech and myself to attend as an attendee, because like, this was great. It was a great feeling to attend and to be a speaker, like when you're a speaker and people don't ask questions, you're like, oh shit, what, is, what, what happened? But like when people ask questions, whether the questions are hard or not, like it's it's great. Anyway, so Tom Triscari did a session in, it was called, is programmatic built to last? Tom Triscari, for those who doesn't know him, he's the founder of Lemonade Project. And so in the video, I think Rob had asked him, like, is it is it built to last? Why right? is programmatic uh, programmatic built to last? And so he had a very interesting analogy. And honestly, um, it was almost like a uh -huh moment for me. So take a listen. Or maybe there's a black swan event that causes marketers to shift thinking right now they're not incentivized to shift thinking so it's so complex the whole subject matter i mean marketers you're looking at 90 billion dollars every year that leaves a dsp according to chris kane and, and, and john's media's numbers right? right well when that was 10 billion when that was a much lower number say 10 15 years ago but then everybody bought in hook line and sinker to this concept of audience targeting then there was data leakage on top of that from the publisher side so you could target audience and there was all this complex stuff going on and um, it, there, we might have reached a point from a game theory perspective where it's too embarrassing to admit failure. Okay. From a marketer's perspective. So what do you do? You keep spending. In other words, think about it this way. So in game theory, 
you have, you have um, a prisoner's dilemma. Prisoner's dilemma, there's two crooks, they get caught in the act, the cops catch them and they put them in two separate rooms to interrogate them. <laughs> no one knows, no, neither crook knows what the other one is gonna say in interrogation. And this happens, by the way. No, I'm sorry, yeah, go ahead. So, so, but here's the thing. So now, what do they do? What is their best bet? Their best bet is to not, not give up the other guy. That's the best outcome for both players. If you think about an advertiser being one player in ad tech, at all of ad tech, the ecosystem in the middle, as being another player, their best bet for both sides right now is to not admit that. <laughs> no, no, it was, it was a, oh, scarcity at scale. Right? Scarcity at scale, two S's. Okay. There we go, yeah, S to S. There we go, great, dude, <laughs> done. Uh, <laughs> One of the things that, that reminds me of a Silicon Valley episode, but that's a different thousand percent, and let's not go there. But there is a piece of that. Um, but there is a one of the terms that you um, I've seen in your newsletter and you've talked about is radical transparency. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what you what you mean by that? Yeah. So <clears throat> my content that I'm doing, um, which spans lots of things now, but it all comes from the concept of radical transparency, which is something from a gentleman named Ray Dalio, who um, he's the founder of, of Bridgewater Capital, the biggest hedge fund in the world. I think it still is. Um, and so the, 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 the core principle of it is, is to ask, what do you want? What is true? Practice what is true to get what you want. So how do I kind of shift that into the programmatic sense from an, I guess, from uh, either a buyer or a seller's perspective, but so what do you want from programmatic? Well, the question there is not what you, not the want part, but you. Who, who are we talking about? Are we talking about an advertiser? Is that the you? Is it a publisher? Is it an SSP, a DSP, a data seller? Ad verification, which is in all parts of the supply chain, right? Uh, I mean, collecting revenue in all parts of the supply chain. So let's say, for example, let's take it from the advertiser's perspective. What do you want from programmatic? Do you want cheap reach? Is that what you want? That's easy to do, right? You're spending media money. It doesn't mean you're doing advertising, but it means you're able to spend the budget, right? Um, and then what is true? What is true about programmatic? And then what specifically what I mean by that is what is true about the ad quality, right? So think about this. You start out with a dollar from an advertiser, there's some supply chain fees that are taken out by the time that there's actually an impression bought that gets served, must render on the page, must be to a human, must be, then it must be measurable, and then of the measurable it must be viewable, and then it must be brand safe. So if you take those six things, and you see each one of those is a probability, so you have to multiply those six things by each other. So 50% times 50% is 25% times 50% is 12.5%. And you get to this thing that's about like, you know, two and a half or five, two and a half or a 5% probability of this thing actually being a good ad, right? That's, that's, that's a different way to describe cheap reach. Now, if you're doing audience targeting on top of that, you may not care about all the wasted. You just care about reaching your audience, um, which is more, I think, could be useful if you're a direct response advertiser. I don't know how that's gonna be useful for a brand advertiser. Um, so what is true about programmatic ad quality? And what you're, what you're really doing there is you're asking a question, like I said, about probabilities. And you're trying to assess, you're trying to remove um, these various biases that we have, information bias, availability bias, escalation of commitment, success bias, anchoring, ulcers, ulcers. It's the whole, it's like a, it's like a site class. Um, that you're dealing with.
So before, okay, so two more things about the Navigator, aside from it was the bomb.com. Um, I got to attend the wrap up, cut the act <laughs> session and grouchy Greg Watkins was um, leading the panel um, and Gra grouchy Greg again is the founder of allhiphop.com and I'm using my phone to not butcher anybody on the panels. Um, and then Davon Johnson, Christopher Johnson, founder of um, Blue Life Media Group and co-founder of Bomisi was one of the panelists. And then Renee Appel, SVP Global Partnerships and Strategy of at Vox Media uh, was on the panel too. And um, Vox Media is one of the partners that put their money where their mouth was and continues to support diversity on creators, publishers, like they claim and promise and pledge for. So shout out to Vox. And so in this response that you're about to listen to uh, Renee say is that, first of all, she was super dope. I love the fact that she was on the panel holding her own, letting these people know like, yeah, at Vox, we don't play games. This is what's happening. Uh, but part of the, again, part of the question was like, why in this particular one, and I'm and I'm paraphrasing what Grouchy's question was, but it's basically, you'll hear her answer the question of like, does minority or diversity uh, inventory equals lower performance or a specific type of audience? And at the end, and I love how she was like, no, that audience also is American Express uh, audience. Like we got Amex too, okay, y'all, we do. And so I like that, I like that. So take a listen to her. Those words impact me, yeah. you know. Um, from a black owned brand perspective, I would imagine that there's other vernacular that ends up on these lists like black, <laughs> you know, that, you know, serve to decrease the reach to the audience that they claim they're trying to actually target. I think like linking uh, thoughts that you both had is the idea that it's like, it's really important to be committed to the fact that it's not easy. Like we've, we've been taught in business to like go towards the easiest win, the highest return on investment, the quickest, um, you know, path to success. And that's an imperative to stay in business. No one wants to, to, to choose the opposite. No one, no one can choose a job and says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna fail fast for you. Um, but, but I think what I think is important about that as a statement is like the education process and, and helping brand partners go through that list and, and understand that if they truly are committed to the communities as they as their declarations on their websites state and as their stated goals state and as they get up on stages like this and and wave that banner and that means thinking about things differently and 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 sort of staying with things that aren't as quick to return but i can share with you as a as a bright spot is that you know american express unilever a bunch of big brands have have partnered with us through the bbc relationship and as one example we saw a 23 percent over benchmark VCR in our Q3 efforts. Um, we are enjoying 25% um, of consumers are staying for three minutes or more of the video that the um, one of our partners is, is, um, has distributed across their websites. So there is really high performance to be had because this community is, as stated earlier, is, is underserved. Like they they buy Unilever products. <laughs> they, they own American Express cards. Like, and, and, and not talking to them in dedicated spaces and not supporting them in the same way, um, you know, it's sort of an easier performance metric, thankfully, that we've seen recently. You know, I'm part of those campaigns. And when I looked at my stats, 
Okay, so last before least, you'll have, you'll hear um, another part of the interview, right? The last session with uh, Grouchy, Renee, and um, Davon Christopher. And um, man, um, so Renee starts giving her, her, I'm going to say she starts answering it very diplomatically how to handle the whole we ain't got no budget for diversity or I don't know if that investing in diversity is going to give us a higher return or that RI number is going to increase much larger than what we think we want anyway um, so I love her response but I do want to invite you all to listen because about four minutes of the this part of the interview I guess I recorded but um, I want to invite you to hear Davon's Christopher Johnson's answer to that question, which was brilliant. And um, and if you haven't heard my interview with Davon, it's uh, episode 136 or 137 um, or 138. <laughs> Anyways, one of the latest um, 130s where he, he talked about Bomisi, he talked about Rule Life Media Group, he talked about... Um, bombshell which is um the the female version of of the of his magazine but um but yeah it was super phenomenal take a listen doing direct sales and when the programmatic ecosystem came up that's when all this like cloudiness yeah. started to kind of form and so what i'm trying to say is is that you know my brand has always performed for any uh any for any brand that was looking to yeah. target a somebody who loves hip hop, which is pretty much everybody in the whole world. <laughs> um, and so, <laughs> you know, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? You know, like, uh, uh, how how soon are we gonna uh, see this uh, shift kind of turn? Because yeah. it almost feels like it's trying to turn around the Titanic. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully not the Titanic. Um, but I think what's interesting about the question, and specifically which relates to those of you who are in the room who are publishers, one of the things we sort of debate is, as you said, Janafa, the more the most multicultural um, and minority-based, for lack of a better word, sort of generation ever before. So we always think about the idea of like dedicated spaces versus new majority ready. You know, we we want to create environments by which every culture is spoken to authentically in a, in a welcoming and inclusive setting. Um, but we also understand that certain lived experiences connect people around cultural moments, hip hop, um, the Latinx community, et cetera. And so we always try to find that balance of creating editorial opportunities for us to be speaking about uh, things that feel, that may have historically felt like, well, that's just to this particular community or this particular people who identify in this way. So we'll, we'll, we'll park it over here and we'll talk about everything else over here. I think one of the things that that's almost an interesting paradigm shift that we all have to sort of wrestle with as publishers is how much do we want to create as dedicated spaces and how much do we want to assume that as people become more inclusive in in how they believe that content should be authored and as people identify as more multicultural, creating the entirety of their content to welcome in and celebrate all communities is also like a really interesting imperative for us. So I think what'll be interesting is is dedicating inventory and, and media investment budgets to Black-owned and, and Black-targeted and LGBTQ-owned and LGBTQ-targeted, but also understanding that like 
you should choose, brands in my opinion should choose publishers who also author content to welcome everybody in every space. So the, the idea of dedicated budgets versus not dedicated budgets, I think that's an interesting place will be is how much do we wanna say this is a Hispanic budget or this is a black budget, how much do we wanna say this is our total market budget and it will be inclusive of and it should create spaces for, but the separate RFPing, I probably wonder how much longer it will be doing that. I, I agree, I think the separate RFP is gonna dissolve soon, sooner than, than yeah. later. I think total market. True inclusive total market mm -hmm. is where we should be going. If you're thinking about the future, if you want to sell a product and you want to sell it to the future and have a sustainable company in the future, the future looks diverse. So you should be including that in your plans now. Don't wait for the future to show up. <laughs> Some other brand does it, yeah. and then you end up going to business because you weren't ready. Although we're telling you on the stage and all the stats say it and all the math is there, we've been saying the majority for the past five years. So it's like if you're choosing not to be diverse, then you're choosing not to be diverse, right? It's not like you don't know better. It means mm. you don't want diversity in your company. Period. You don't want to spend money diverse diversity. Mm. You're actually practicing racism. And that's the truth, right? Because outside of that, there's no excuse not to be diverse in your budgets. Mm. Like it's we can't find the money, you can't find customers. Like I'm <laughs> I'm trying to figure out what, what, what that is, right? Um, the other side of it too, I think before we thought of independent publishers as uh, small businesses waiting to be acquired versus true partnership. Mm. So this partnership that Bobisi has with Fox Media is a partnership. They're, they, they didn't acquire anyone, they don't own anyone's traffic. This is a truly opt-in for diverse publishers to be part of. And if they don't like it, they can opt out. There's no penalty for opting out. I think there's been a lot of predatory uh, fake partnerships that have been out there in the past. Um, ad tech specifically tries to pretend they want to partner with diversity and mm. they want to own the audience because our IP is really all we have. It's our, it's our real currency that's there. So this is also a very special relationship that we allow our publishers to keep um, their self-ownership. And they're not giving away their community, they're not giving away their voice, not giving away their IP, um, and we're monetizing at scale. Uh, we also learn too, right? It's, there's so many barriers that Okay, we're coming to the end of the episode here. Um, I could probably go keep talking for about two hours. Um, but again, if you haven't heard me say this at the beginning and you made it this far, congratulations. You should attend one of Philotech's conferences and that's a strong recommendation. It is set up to network and to encourage cross-partnership, cross-friendship, whatever the word is these days. And then I want to give a special thank you to, um, you know, Rob and Melissa, who really welcomed me very, you made me feel comfortable after, you know, being a, a few months postpartum, getting out there and leaving the kiddos at home for the first time. So I want to thank you. I want to give you a shout out. I think you gave me permission to go back to doing something that I'm really passionate about, which is speaking engagement, which is educating, which is just connecting. Um, so shout out to you. And I'll end with this, is that the end of the episode, I'll give you about uh, five minutes of the, the talk I did, but it was uh, finding the right impression. Um, what was the name of my session actually? Hold up. Okay. Yeah. Finding the right impression in the open exchange. And I had about a good amount of people coming. I think it was a group 40, 40 people who maybe 30 people who I don't know. It looked like it was at least 75% of the room uh, filled out, I think, or um, 
or maybe I was just sweating and was left. But anyway, um, everybody was very gracious. Um, my session was giving them a perspective, a visual on how to um, what what decision we make as buyers when it comes to inclusion and exclusion of site list or supply supply inventory. And so <laughs> some people in the room were not as happy, um, but everybody was gracious. Everybody was diplomatic and the questions were excellent. Um, so shout out to you if you attended um, the conference. I specifically told everyone that attended that I am happy to connect afterwards and the invitation does not expire. So enjoy the rest of this episode with uh, a few minutes of my session. If you have any follow-up from what you just heard, if you want to have a direct access to Rob, Melissa, or anybody on the team, I'm happy to make intro. Most of the information is on um, in the show notes at the bottom. And then, yeah, I cannot wait to go attend the next Beeler Tech Conference. So shout out to you, Beeler team. You're phenomenal. And you were, I mean... I'm really, I'm here to support and encourage more conferences like yours, okay? To my listeners, to everyone that is tuning in via YouTube or uh, podcast platform, thank you. I am your host, Ellen Parker. If you're interested in training, make sure you reach out to me on LinkedIn or again, my information will be in the show notes. Thank you so much and have a wonderful rest of your day, y'all. Right, we don't want our brands to be associated with porn sites. Uh, maybe it's not gambling because some brands cannot aren't gambling not suitable to all brands, but that's still not brand unsafe, right? It's more on the brand unsafe category. Uh, but brand suitability comes down to that manual work and it's super intuitive. Okay, so I'm going to show you an Excel like that a trader will look at, and I've looked at many years ago, and I'm going to walk you through some of these decisions that's going to help answer this question. It's like Brand safety is you're setting up in the trade desk in your DSP, whatever it is, and you're selecting those those really cool partners that your DSP person tells you to select. Peer 39, ISDB, which again, I'm not throwing shade at any of you if you're in the room. Um, they've performed fairly well, depending on what you're trying to do. So you're setting up P39 and then you're running your media and then you're downloading your report and then you're seeing the amount of sites. Brand safety is a pre-bid filter and a post-verification filter. That's it. It's like this one thing you're you're checking in, at least from a buyer perspective. And then if it's on, cool, we move on with our life. Brand suitability is when we get down to that site and we get down and dirty and we really look at that site, down to that site. We have, as you know, tons of thousands of sites to look at. So that's why it goes down to that KPI. It's like, we don't got time to know exactly what's up. Like we go KPI, yes, no, okay, move, you're out. That's how easy it is, unfortunately. And so brand safety is a great question. It's something that's very suitable. And here's another thing to news is not brand unsafe. Um, a person identity is not brand unsafe. So please check, okay, on your contextual targeting, on your ad block list to make sure that there's no keywords like black, queer, gay, Asian, those are not brand unsafe. Even right now, Israel, Palestine is not unsafe. Okay, somebody's ethnicity is not unsafe. It might not be always suitable, suitable, but it's up to us as brands, and I'm shaming brands here, not really publishers, to, to, to not be like that, not automatically assume that, oh, let's exclude Israel and Palestine right away. No, it's, it's a little bit deeper, y'all, right? And we're terrible at this, we're real quick at excluding local news. 
I mean, you can find some video of me on YouTube where I'm like, ah, this is news. No, I reject. No, like I've been, I've been guilty of doing that. So now it's a little bit deeper than just making quick, quick decision like that. And so, um, so, okay. So back to the checklist. So when we make our decision, when we download our report, it's as simple as like what's performing well, what's not performing. And then I introduce something called the probation list. This is very, very, very proprietary. <laughs> proprietary is a, a word I love to throw. But um, it's very like something I teach. It's like when you don't know if it's low or high because you don't have enough data, just push it on in your prob probation list for now. Um, and so that's what probation is. So everybody good? Okay, cool. Um, Oh, and then the, the bottom is just like, uh, each session is supposed to be 15 to 45 minutes. Um, it's going to take hours to look at data. <laughs> it can take hours. It's a lot, it's a lot going on in, in Excel. But, um, and there's a lot of people that will be, a lot, a lot of buyers that will be like, Excel is not the way to look at data. We, you should have data visualization like Domo, Tableau. It's like, have you all seen the pricing for Tableau and Domo? No shades. It's like, Good for the agencies that's able to implement this or invest in tools like that in their tech stack. But most of the medium to large size that I'm talking about, and don't, don't front, medium to large size means several zeros just as much as the large size and extra large size. It's just their tech stack. That's not a focus. They don't have time. They don't have the talent. You want to realize uh, you have a desktop and you share your data <coughs> Oh, are you with Tableau? Oh, <laughs> it's like Tableau is plugging in. Good for you. <laughs> hey, I didn't say cheap. I said cost efficient. So I do know the workaround. I don't think the budget rule is that can in fact look at. I think it's Tableau through Power BI. One of them is the desktop application, where if you're willing to share the data back to their second server, they'll give you the entire visualization. Well, you heard it here first. Okay. I had no idea that. I think it's really cool. But then again, I'm like kind of frowning when eyebrows lifting up when you say you got to share your data. Like, oh, I don't know. When is that? Cons What's the extension of the consent you gave me, right? How much am I going to use? Um, I think it's good that Power BI or Tableau is doing that. Um, but how much time does it take you to set up your, your dashboard if you don't mind me asking? And there's no trick. It's not a trick question. I'm genuinely trying to know. So. If you're storing your data and you've got the data in the USB SQL database, mm -hmm. it's not very long. Okay. So if your whole system is still based on downloading Excel files and everything, it's going to be okay. It's going to be, okay. So you have to have some level of expectation. The wide line of agencies, the inside of agencies, but a sophisticated visual desk of SQL files. Yeah. And then it's automatic, right? And then yeah. you have to adjust it. And that's the way to use it. Mm. Otherwise, even with all that, you're still going to use it. <laughs> Excel is bay. Excel is bay. I got in trouble on LinkedIn because of that. Okay, cool. So let me show y'all. Okay, so this is part of the. I just wanted to show y'all the, um, the optimization grid because these are the type of data we get back. I don't know if that's something that's common. Like I don't know if an adopts will pull something and, and look at this in much de details, but we can get very granular in our details. And so um, here's a few concerns. So we talked about it a little bit, like transparency and reporting details. Like, <laughs> I'm sorry, but we have no idea some of those sites, like if they're minority owned, if they are 
unless it's literally like if you click through, you can clearly see local news. We can't we can't really see that at the, at least the 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 report level. It's it's just a, there's a lack of transparency and details. And sometimes we can't pivot all of the targeting levers we want to. Not all reporting are created equal, but obviously if you use any ad tech in this industry, you know that that nothing is created equal. And uh, time is a commodity. We don't have a lot of time. Any of us. Um, and then AI tools. So I mentioned how Chalice is great and Cybits are great, but also not as accessible for, again, some of the target market I'm, I'm servicing right now, I guess. And then limiting knowledge on the publisher's information, right? We're able to pivot something called a seller in a report from the trade desk, but I haven't seen that seller in like something like a Delphic or DV360. So I'm literally just looking at site and SSPs and making decisions from there, right? But if I have that seller, then I know that, oh, okay, well... I know the seller, you know, you can Google it and you know that it's, you know, a seller that's vertical specific. That's why it's not working for my pharma uh, campaign or things like that. Okay, cool. So I do have, like I said, the Excel, which is kind of fancy schmancy here with a lot of colors. How many of us are Excel gurus here? Do y'all know Excel? Okay. Okay. Don't call me out. Okay. I'm just letting me know. I'm, pre I'm pretty guruing. But like sometimes I do meet somebody that DMs me on LinkedIn. Like I saw your YouTube video. You could do this faster this way. So it's cool. You can still do it. Just do it with love. That's all I'm asking. Um, so this is an example of report we'll get, right? And I've already worked from it. It took me 30 minutes to work on this. That's why if you get back into this QR code, like I did the whole hour long session about like one ad group that we were looking at. So for instance, this is a financial service. Um, example right and you see we're targeting some of that competitors and this is very third-party data heavy right there's still a lot of us buying third-party data because we don't have a lot anyway so um so this is a lot so we have a lot of ad groups to look at and we make decisions based on what i said if this is a cpa campaign and ott viewers retargeting display is 102 in my cpa is like i don't i don't want to keep you know, what is happening. So I'll go in there and then I'll look at my top, my low performing, and then I'll decide if there's probations. Um, so back to inventory. So this is basically the type of report we'll get. And then again, I've worked on it a little bit and everything in green are basically the sites that I went by and said, looked at, all right, am I getting good impression number? How's my CPMs? Um, I also look at the cost, right? Um, why do I look like spend and cost is because if I'm spending all this money and there's no, like, there's no conversions, CPA is outrageous. We are probably going to cut this site off and it's as easy as copy paste it into an exclusion list and uploading it to the DSP. And that's how we make decisions. I'm sorry to say. So like, if you see one of your publisher here, um, I apologize, but, uh, but the green one are good is the one I want. We want to continue. Okay. And I've have not added the red one and, <laughs> and the yellow one. Again, the yellow is a probation. And why is it, why is there yellow, uh, a probation list? Again, it's just like, maybe this site just needs a little bit more time to bloom just like mulan there's that one flower that needs a little bit more time to bloom and then she goes and save china maybe we have a site and that site is going to be on my probation list because i'm not confident enough to cut it off okay but um so i'm gonna i saw somebody squinting so here that's me on my own personal computer so i got you fam so so some of these sites this is what we get this is an open marketplace okay so oh <laughs> open marketplace list 
Um, so there's no deals in this, at least not. Maybe, you know, that was what, two, three years ago. So maybe there's a new deal. But look at those sites. I'm targeting B2B. Okay, people that want a business loan. And then I'm bidding on things like the reviewgeek.com. But then again, it's only 19 impressions. So maybe not this one is not a good one. Um, but you can look at it like ebay.com. Are people still using eBay for real? Wow. Are there like millennials only? Like this is the next generation? <laughs>